0: Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I am a photographer of over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes. I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word... this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. This book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishing. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is The Shame of the Cross by Bruce Bickle and Stan Jantz. Bruce Bickel is an attorney and chief operating officer of conversantlife.com. His previous books with Stan Jantz include Knowing God 101, Knowing the Bible 101, and God is in the Small Stuff. Stan Jantz is the president of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association and co-founder of conversantlife.com. He is the co-author of more than 50 books, including I'm Fine with God, It's Christians I Can't Stand, and Christianity 101 Bible Studies. So with that, let's read the essay that they co-wrote together, entitled The Shame of the Cross. The essay begins. While we appreciate the beauty of the artistic photographs in this book, We must always remind ourselves that the cross was not in any way attractive or exquisite. The death of Christ on the cross was not a pretty picture. Death by crucifixion in the first century AD was a hideous sight. The torture, brutality, and agony made it the most offensive form of capital punishment. The Roman authorities used it only for the worst criminals. In the Jewish culture, it was considered a sign of being cursed by God. Friends and family of a person who had been crucified became the subject of ridicule and derision. They suffered the shame and scorn that was associated with the crucifixion. The Jewish religious leaders that instigated Christ's arrest were intent on imposing the sentence of death by crucifixion. They thought that a scandalous death would certainly put an end to his influence. And In fact, some Jews could not accept Christ as the Messiah because the scandal of the crucifixion was a stumbling block to their belief. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Despite the shame that was associated with it, the Apostle Paul recognized that the cross was the best representation of what Christians have to celebrate. Galatians 6:14 We have nothing but the cross and its shame and scandal are the essence of our faith. When we consider the cross, we want to remember that Christ had to lower himself to the greatest degree to die a sacrificial death in our place. The real cruelty of his death was the weight of our sins that he carried. This could be no pristine and tranquil death, it had to be a horrible and excruciatingly painful death due to the depravity of our sins. We made Christ's death shameful and scandalous, yet he went through it for our sake. The cross of Christ is beautiful and precious because it stands for the shame and scandal that Christ suffered for our salvation. That ends the essay, The Shame of the Cross, as written and submitted by Bruce Bickle and Stan Jantz, and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. The photo accompanying the essay is the cleansing, which is a vertical image of the cross, with the cross covering about 60% of the frame from the lower left. There's a dark black cloud covering about 60% of the frame from the top towards the bottom. And below that, the sky is illuminated with amber light, shining through wisps of rain, descending onto and behind the cross. There's also a bird flying above the right wing of the cross. One reason why this image correlates with this essay is because through the decision to believe and accept, the sacrifice Jesus made, then we can be cleansed by his shed blood, washing away our sin, guilt, weakness, shame, grudges, and hurts. Now, I have to be transparent. As you know, because I'm sure you were listening attentively to the intro to today's program, that this book contains original essays written and submitted by a range of Christian leaders And when this essay came in, written by a partnership of two writers, my initial reaction, underpinned by some Adamic nature tendencies, was to reject it. But I did not dwell on that potential response, but I pondered it. I felt that maybe they were sliding or impugning the cross-collection. And yes, as I mentioned, my Adamic nature took it to the next level. That is to say, I felt they might be impugning my intention for and in creating and sharing this collection. However, I did not set out to shoot a cross, neither a beautiful one or a realistic one. I found that cross about a week to the year after losing my wife to cancer. I had, up to that point, put my camera on the shelf. You see, I had been shooting about 10 years before that, and when my wife and I had focused on a side business in a roundabout way, to be able to do photography full-time, meaning to become successful enough to leave our day jobs and shoot what I wanted, which back then was actually nature and inspirational imagery versus the path that I had been on, uh, shooting products for for companies, um, family portraits and weddings. She recognized my uh, focus, my artistic focus for inspirational art, and she wanted to help me. So we were on our way, meaning she had retired from her day job to come home and continue this little business that had grown. Um, She was given a very nice party by her bosses, and she was able to say goodbye to her co-workers, all of which knew, because she said it often, that her next step was to allow me to leave my day job and refocus on my photography. That was on May 10th, and 13 days later, she was gone. God had come for her hand to take her home early. I was there holding her hand when she flatlined, and I tangibly felt his hand take hers for mine. That experience afforded me a stoic peace in the midst of the storm that preceded, that unfolded. After the activities of the funeral and other related transition activities, I let the business simply fade away. I resolved to fulfill my day job duties, but took my camera off the shelf, and every night I fell into the routine of chasing and soaking in every sunset I could. It felt like it was the closest I could get to heaven on this earth. St. Benedict believed that humans have the ability to tap into eternity. And there were times at certain sunsets where I became lost in some sort of wrinkle in the fabric of time and space. Words can't adequately explain what I felt and saw internally, especially as it was personal for me. But suffice it to say, it amplified my desire to find another sunset the next night, and the night after, and the next. I fell into a chasing sunset phase of my life, and it was in this mode of living that I discovered a new hill to shoot from, and I found there a 12-foot-high white wooden cross. After several visits, I had flashes of that ethereal tinge of eternity while at the cross. Then the die was cast. I found that this site became my secret place, my hiding place to spend communicating with and reflecting on God. And yes, at the same time, a way to fulfill my artistic obsession with shooting that same cross as many different ways as I could. Several times the two merged, resulting in some of my most majestic images of the cross in the collection. Like many aspects of our lives that we in hindsight, referred to as a God thing, meaning, again, the the cross collection was a natural evolution of my life at the time and a place that God drew me to, which means that God wanted me to create the collection over these two years without concern about how some might interpret that art that God inspired me to create. Similarly, when I desired to share the collection, I did so through a 20-piece gallery show. And In that circuit, that included Boise, Seattle, Oregon, Northern California, one of the visitors I met was very well-connected. And he asked me what I planned to do after the gallery show. And I said, oh, to make a much larger format gallery show. And he said, no, you have a book here. With the book, you can reach the whole world instead of people having to come to a specific gallery show at a specific city. He then contacted Harvest House Publishers on my behalf, and the book was published in spite of me, another God thing. Which is good, because then I can't really take credit for it, but it does allow a much easier path to say glory to God when I get praise for my art or for the book, both of which, to me, was willed by God to have come into existence. So, when someone critiques my work as over-beautifying a symbol at, one of the most violent, bloody, and agonizing way to be killed, I take peace knowing that God used me as a conduit to create something that can, non-verbally but effectively, preach the good news of the gospel of Christ. All that said, after reading their essay, really reading it, I must say they make a compelling case for a particular perspective of the sacrifice Jesus made, which includes more than just his time spent up on the cross. Moreover, if you caught it while I was reading their essay, the concluding comment actually negates what I felt initially as a possible put-down of the artistic rendering of the cross. They concluded with, The cross is beautiful and precious because it stands for the shame and scandal that Christ suffered for our salvation. And I agree. As I ponder a line from a poem that accompanied last week's episode by J.R.W. Scott that said, The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. The entire justice system of our country and many other countries has a version of a symbol of a blindfolded lady holding a set of scales. But in the kingdom of God, we are judged primarily if we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ or not much like the blood of the Lamb that was put on the doorpost of the Hebrew home before the arrival of the angel of death. But this essay causes us to look and to really ponder what Jesus fully went through to become our Savior. A series of events, when viewed comprehensively, leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse or more painful or more inhumane than 99% of the human race. As we will come to understand in this episode, my comment is not hyperbole. Even if you do not believe in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, if you are honest, you will agree the man known as Jesus died a death more horrific than most other humans. Sure, someone can pull up stories of a terrible death here or there, but if you find references that were at or worse than the death of Jesus. It's still as minuscule. It's a minuscule percentage of the tens of billions that have ever lived. With that premise, let's dig into what Bickle and Jantz wrote. The first thing that really jumped out to me was not the obviousness of how gruesome, violent, and disfiguring the process of a crucifixion was, but the cultural and societal shame it brought. Not only to the one being executed, but the widespread stigma to all of his family and his friends. Those known to be associated with the defendant were socially shunned, almost like dropping down a peg or two in the Hebrew version of a caste system ruled by the priest caste. But that new knowledge did not impact me as much as when they taught me in the essay how the crucified were perceived as being cursed by God. Wow. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I am struck by two seemingly hidden heavenly truths that I never thought of. It was right there the whole time. And these truths were hidden in both directions, meaning from the garden and all the way to the rapture. So let's see if I got this. God had to curse and break the right relationship with his beloved and only son to restore the right relationship with mankind. Yes, and it's why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, break his right relationship with them and then curse them, toiling and sweating over the fields for Adam and childbearing and enmity with the serpent for Eve. Then he exiled them from the garden. Why? God cannot dwell with sin. But now to reverse this status, God the Father had to curse and exile Jesus, who was sinless, innocent, and holy, giving Jesus up to the worst execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on someone. Some might say that all we will learn about in this episode, about the physical aspects of the torturous process of a crucifixion, was nothing compared to the utter horror of agony and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future until the rapture placed on him. That means all the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, villainous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderous, barbarous, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable, uncomprehensible, uncomprehendable. Wow. But it makes sense now. In the light of the new paradigm I just learned from Bickle and Jantz, maybe it was not just a cultural and societal belief that the, crucif- that the crucified were cursed of God, but maybe it was an actual part of the actual plan from the beginning of time. As I mentioned, the Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy and cannot hab- cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from His Son allow all the sin of the world to dwell with Jesus. We know this to be the case when it was reported that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So, wow. So even those people who feel God has abandoned them, Jesus can say he knows what it feels like because it actually happened to him. And more than any human, Because Jesus the Son was closer to God the Father than any human that has ever lived from the beginning of creation. The absolute anguish of being abandoned and then having the sin of the world placed upon him is unfathomable, unimaginable, and as I said, incomprehensible. But let's continue. They were right. It was a brutal and shameful way to die. This is why during the last episode, Episode 12, we hear in Isaac Watts' hymn, At the Cross, ask why? Why did his Savior have to die like this? The pair of authors for this essay state that this method of capital punishment was reserved only for the worst type of criminal, and that in the first century Hebrew culture was a stigma not only for the condemned, but for the whole family and friends, business associates, and everyone that was part of that person's life. As an analogy, the only comparable stigma I can think of right now would be treason. Let's say you have an uncle who is a professor at a university and he gets arrested, tried, and convicted for selling secrets of some confidential experiment with the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, something that has been happening a lot these last few years. Now, if this happens, everyone who knows you would know that your uncle was a traitor to our country, and some might even begin to suspect your loyalties. The country. So, this perspective provides fresh insights as to why the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, would accept nothing less than a crucifixion. Pilate, then Herod, and Pilate again offered many alternatives to crucifixion. I've often wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be willing to negotiate this point with the governing force occupying their land. On a side note, if Israel were not occupied by the Romans during the life of Jesus Christ, then Jesus would not have been crucified. And yet it was a death prophesied by several Old Testament prophets. As Caiaphas told Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment. When Pilate asked them, well, why don't you just deal with Jesus in your own way? There was many ways they could have, but this was as much political as it was a commercial motivation as the followers of christ were growing being baptized and forgiven less people needed the priest class meaning the need for purchasing a sacrifice whether a lamb or a pair of doves was lessening and lessening the priest not only made a lot of money in this system but an endless supply of free food from the excess sacrifices and the followers of jesus kept growing The arrival of Jesus in what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus entering Jerusalem was like a final straw for the Pharisees. They not only wanted Jesus gone, but they wanted a stigma associated with Jesus such that anyone following the teachings or theology of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. Until I read this essay, I had not thought of this aspect of why the religious leaders would not accept anything less than crucifixion and a political assassination of the character of Jesus. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that there is nothing new under the sun, meaning, in the light of current events, we see political assassinations are still pursued by groups of people who want to maintain and hold on to power and revenue sources. Selah. We see in John 15, 18 through 20, that Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All that considered, Paul, who used to carry out more than just a character assassination of Christians, but would literally kill them, gives a heavenly perspective after his conversion. We read in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, don't run from the tsunami stigma that the world assigns to us, but duck dive right into it. It is all we have, and we should be proud that the thing that society uses to impugn us is the very essence of our faith. In our faith tradition, it represents how our divine entity, with Father God from before the creation of the world, lowered himself to the lowest of lows, physically, spiritually, and culturally, to become the only legitimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And as we focused on these last few episodes... Jesus went even lower in the afterlife to the realm of Lucifer, but emerging victorious with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Now, as much as I would like to go into a certain level of detail about the crucifixion, I have to be careful. On my weekly terrestrial radio broadcast, a children's program is follows. So my original intention to really detail uh, some of the um, aspects of steps of of the crucifixion, uh, I'll skip. (laughs) But suffice it to say, um, it was the most torturous, horrifying, and violent way for a person to be killed. I know Christians who could not even watch certain scenes of the Passion movie. So let's walk through the steps at a high level. First, we see disrespect and shame as the religious officials in John's accounts, slap him in the face during the questioning. Secondly, we see a mix of violence and shame that they stripped him naked and placed a scarlet robe mocking his divinity and flogged him with a whip that had lead and metal braids at the tips. Then they struck him in the head with a stick or a rod while spitting on him, the latter being considered a source of deep shame, not just to be spit on, but to be spit on by a Gentile. Then they twisted a crown of thorns and forced it onto his scalp while kneeling and mocking him. Then they forced him to carry his own cross down a long route from the Praetorium to the hill of Golgotha, an Aramaic named for the place of the skull. Some estimates are that the type of cross would weigh possibly over a 100 or 200 pounds. And having to pull this weight in his condition with part of the cross resting on fresh flogged wounds... I can't imagine. Fortunately, Simon of Cyrene took the cross the rest of the way. But when they arrived, they outstretched his wounded arms and drove a huge nail the size of a railroad track stake into the section of his wrist at the bottom of the arm, in between the two bones, being careful not to puncture the main bloodline, or else he would bleed and short-circuit the whole point of the crucifixion. And it was a purposeful and diabolical way to kill somebody as slowly as possible. Then they drove a huge stake, in the ankle area to secure the legs to the vert- vertical cross beams. Then they lifted the cross into position, and the slow process of suffocation began. As I mentioned, crucifixion is a death that is engineered to take a long time to die, a day or two, of ever-present pain and slow reduction in the ability to actually breathe. And at one point, the soldiers were ordered to break the legs of all three um, that were being crucified on Calvary the Latin name for the skull. They do this to reduce the victim's ability to push up with their feet, take in more air or more efficiently breathe. But Jesus was already dead. And this perplexed the soldiers as it was way before they had expected him to die. So they broke the legs of the two thieves. But just to be sure Jesus was dead, they pierced his side and it was reported that a mix of blood and water flowed out. But why? Why had Jesus died so early? Hmm. Well, There is a school of thought that Jesus died of a broken heart. What, you ask? Well, I actually alluded to this in detail earlier. Jesus allowed all the sins of all mankind across all the span of history, from Cain killing Abel into the future until the rapture. All of the most disgusting, hurtful actions ever committed were placed on and in Jesus. It is simply overwhelming to understand. Actually, I'm surprised he lasted one minute with all that vile sin of everyone, everywhere, inside of the perfect, innocent, and holy heart of Jesus. I think this is more about the shame of the cross than the violence his physical form took. But I truly appreciate what God the Father willed and what Jesus the Son allowed. Remember, the whole plan of salvation was for Jesus to live as one of us, to experience the plight, hunger, tiredness, pain, grief of loss, and the temptation we face. And in the crucifixion, we see that it might be impossible for any one person to say that they had anything more painful happen to them. Moreover, when Jesus took all the sin of the world, no one can say that Jesus would not know what they went through or are going through. To those who even feel abandoned, Jesus knows intimately the absolute hopelessness of this actually happening to him. It means that there is nothing you have gone through or will go through that Jesus has not already gone through for you. If you are a Christian, have you been living this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on this paradigm. Why? Because it removes all possible fear, doubt, insecurity. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any scenario is the best case outcome for us, God's children. Go and live that today. If you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice made for you, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and watch the movies like The Passion of the Christ or other Easter-based movies. Because if you do, I'm convinced that you will thank him for his sacrifice, asking Jesus to forgive you of those sins you placed on him and asking Him to dwell inside of the cleaned out and healed portion of your heart today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in His perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program, heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay, The Cleansing, along with Cross parations and other Verse parations then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to MagiCross.com. That is M A J I C R O S S.com.